The scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 7, starting verse 1. It's in the bulletin there as well, if you want to follow along. Revelation 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their face before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All right. Can you hear me at the back? Carrie, can you hear me? Bob, can you hear me? Good? Awesome. Let me ask you this. Where does the courage to follow Jesus come from when times are especially tough? Maybe when uh, you stood up for a bullied employee and things got really intense. Or perhaps it was when setting boundaries on a destructive relationship and you did that, but things seemed to get even crazier. Maybe when sharing your commitment to Jesus made your friends look at you kind of strange. (laughs) Or what about, where does the courage come from when... Continuing to love your spouse is hard because they don't even seem to notice you anymore. When you're praying for kids 
But nothing seems to change. What about the times when you, you want to do something that you know is going to hurt you in the long run? And you can hear Jesus calling you to come away, to, to choose life. But it can just feel so hard. You know, choosing not to gossip about that mutual friend. Uh, choosing not to eat that extra helping of food or drink that third beer. Choosing not to sleep with that old boyfriend because you're lonely. Where does that kind of courage come from? The courage to follow Jesus when it, it seems like following Jesus is going to create more problems in your life. When following Jesus looks like, ah, there's no way out of here. There's no way I can win. Where does that kind of courage come from? It comes from knowing that God's got us and that God's going to bring us through. God's got us and God's going to bring us through. When we're facing a difficult decision, when we're tempted to give up on our commitment to love a neighbor, to serve our family, when we're struggling to choose life with the easy road of comfort and self-sacrifice looking or self-service looking so easy, we've got to remember that no matter what happens, God's got us and God's going to bring us through. Today we're continuing our message in Revelation. We're reaching back, actually, because we actually went forward to, into the start of chapter 8. We're reaching back to chapter 7, which we heard Ken read for us. This vision is designed to give us courage when times are tough. And everything we're going to hear today out of chapter 7 of Revelation supports one central truth, that God's got us, and no matter what happens, God is going to bring us through. Well, let's remember where we're at in this apocalypse. We all remember now the meaning of the word apocalypse, right? Is it some terrible, tragic thing? No! It's the pulling back of a curtain to reveal something that's been hidden from our eyes but is present to us. That's why it's called the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Jesus is being revealed in this amazing letter prophecy apocalypse. Last week we saw the Lamb, who is Jesus, but pictured as a slain Lamb, break open the seven seals of God's scroll, initiating God's sovereign plan to make all things new. That's what God is committed to doing. The first four seals presented a devastating picture of world history where the four horsemen of war, violence, injustice, and death trample people and planet in opposition to Jesus' loving kingdom. And we joined with all of creation and with all the church in crying out for Jesus to come, for his kingdom to come. When seals 5 and 6 were broken, we saw two groups of people revealed. Those who find refuge in the Lamb and those who seek refuge from the Lamb. Those who found refuge in the Lamb had been slaughtered like the Lamb. They were underneath the altar where the sacrificial blood runs and they were crying out for God's justice. And we saw them, they were given white robes and they were told to wait a little longer because more of their brothers and sisters were coming. Those who sought refuge from the Lamb, who opposed the Lamb, who continued to hurt and destroy others, they they wouldn't turn toward the Lamb. They called out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them in order to save them from God's opposition to their ways, God's wrath. And at the very end of the, the sixth seal scene, try that five times fast, the sixth seal scene, the people in, in the sixth seal cry out this question, seeing that God's judgment is falling on them because of their rejection of Jesus and their slaughter of, of his followers. They cry out, the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Who can withstand the Lamb? Or perhaps more clearly put, who can stand before the Lamb? 
And that is the question that Revelation 7 answers. It's presented as an interlude. We skipped over it last week so that we could hear all seven seals being broken. But chapter 7 is an interlude between the breaking of seal 6 and seal 7. And it's designed to answer this question, who can stand? Giving comfort and courage to those Christians who are seeing in the vision their brothers and sisters killed, who know that applies to their lives, being killed for their faithfulness and their allegiance to Jesus and his ways. This vision helped early Christians facing the great tribulation of Rome's fury, facing increased persecution for their faithfulness to Jesus, and mounting pressure to compromise their integrity as Jesus' followers. And so Revelation 7, answering the question, who can stand, also asks, answers our basic question today, where does courage come from? When following Jesus gets really tough. So let's dig into Revelation 7 together. It's on an insert in your bulletins. Um, I'm not going to reread all of it because we already heard it read, but you can follow along. So the first thing we need to know, this is where courage comes from. The first thing we need to know from Revelation 7 is that no matter what happens, God's got us. We are sealed. In the opening verses of, of, of chapter 7, four angels are depicted holding back four winds. Winds that are going to bring destruction on the earth. And these four winds are the same as the four horsemen that we've already seen. They're just a different way of saying the same thing. And now this vision, but this vision shows us something now that we haven't seen yet. That these forces, though they're going to trample through and blow violently, are not only limited by God's permission, but they're not allowed to destroy God's people. And, and, and so it's depicted as they're not allowed to be cut loose, as it were, until the servants of God have been given God's seal on their foreheads. Now this sealing business is very interesting. I know lots of speculation happens. Where does it come from? The image of sealing, of putting a mark on the forehead, is rooted in several Old Testament stories. Primarily, it's drawn from a vision that was given to the prophet Ezekiel, where angels are being called to bring judgment on a city, but they're told to wait until all those whose hearts still break for all the terrible, destructive, detestable things being done, whose hearts are breaking, they go through and they mark the people whose hearts are still in line with God's. They mark them, they seal them with God's mark. And after they've been sealed, then the angels proceed to go through in this vision and they just kill everyone else who wasn't marked with the seal. That's kind of behind what's going on here in Revelation 7. But behind that vision even further is the most famous story in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus, where the blood of the lambs were put on doorposts. The doorposts of home, so that when the angel of death passed through the final judgment on Egypt, the homes that were marked with this seal of blood would be passed over and no one would be harmed. harmed. Nobody in that house. Drawing on these stories, God wants to show his people that he's got them, that he's marked them as his, and that he's going to bring them through. And later in Revelation, we see a perverted image of sealing happen, where the famed mark of the beast marks out those who've rejected the lamb and worshipped the beast. But this is, this is what is first and primary, that God has sealed his people. So what does the seal mean? In short, a seal represents ownership and authenticity. Slaves would receive a seal of their master's ownership. Sometimes they would even receive it right on their foreheads so that everyone would know who they belong to and that if you mess with this servant who's going about his master's business, you're going to be messing with his master. It also allowed the servant to act on behalf of his master. 
By sealing his servants, God proclaims his ownership and their authenticity. These servants belong to me, God says. But more than that, these servants are being sealed for protection. Now, as we're going to see, protection doesn't mean that these servants will not suffer and die. Because they will. We'll see that even in this passage. They will. Protection means that these servants will never face God's wrath or judgment. That no matter what happens to them physically, no matter how their families are torn apart, no matter what difficulties they experience because they're followers of Jesus, they are protected from eternal, lasting, spiritual harm. In other words, God's got them, and God's going to bring them through. That's what this sealing is saying to them. What is this sealing, actually? Being sealed, or receiving God's stamp, if you will, means receiving the gift of God's Holy Spirit. That is what it means. When you turn away from being your own boss, when you let Jesus lead in your life, or, as Jesus used the words, when you repent, turn around, and believe the good news, believe in Jesus, God comes to live inside of you. The Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. And it's amazing. God in you. It's a sign that new life has come, that new creation has been initiated in you. And it affects everything. When we read the New Testament, three times the gift of God's Holy Spirit is called a seal. I want to quickly show you these verses. I don't normally dance around a lot of different scripture because I, I don't want to lose folks. But I think it's important for us to see this in these three different passages. First, in Ephesians 1. I'll read the whole passage. There's a little bit left, uh, less than I'm saying on the screen. You also, referring to people who are far away from Jesus, who weren't part of the Jewish faith, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel, the good news, of your salvation. When you believed, that is, when you trusted Jesus with your life for salvation, following him, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Do you see that? God's got them and God's going to bring you through. It's right there. A little further on in the same letter, Paul repeats himself when he challenged these Christians not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 21 22, and it resounds in a very similar way to Revelation 7. Listen to this. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The sealing is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every person who has trusted their lives to Jesus has been sealed by God's Holy Spirit. In very simple terms, God himself comes to live in us. And when God does that, we begin to change. Something begins to happen in us. God in us reproduces in us his good character. We grow in our ability to love. We grow in joy, in patience, in goodness. We become more kind, more gentle, able to control ourselves more, able to serve with gladness and passion. The heart of Jesus is shaped in us. The fruit of the Holy Spirit grows in our lives and it, it begins to influence our relationships and our priorities and what we, what we care about and, frankly, what we don't care about. The image of a seal is God's way of saying, look at them. I've marked them. Isn't it obvious that they're mine? 
Look how they're growing. Look how they're loving. Look how they're changing their mind. And they're under my protection. So here at the beginning of chapter 7, God's servants are sealed. This is good news for any Christian who is receiving this original letter of Revelation. They're being told that no matter what happens, no matter how pressure mounts, no matter how things go crazy, God's got them. They're God's. God will protect them. This gives courage for the present struggle. It gives courage for us as we struggle too. But then something very interesting happens. John hears a census being taken of those who were sealed, these servants. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. 144,000 people, 12,000 from 12 tribes. And he hears each tribe as they're listed with their corresponding 12,000 counted off as an army getting ready for war. This is what he hears. See, in the Old Testament story that sits behind this vision, God's people were only ever counted in preparation for battle. Men over the age of 20 who were fighting fit, were numbered and, and sent into battle. And what John hears in this is the counting out of an army, the army of the Lamb, and they're getting ready for war. And the list is odd. It's the only list of its kind in the whole Bible. It's different than any other list of tribes that's given anywhere. One tribe is completely dropped. Another one's added. The list is rearranged. Uh, but the numbers are perfect. 12 times 12, meaning the complete people of God squared. And then multiplied by 10 cubed. I'm no mathematician, but I think that's 10 times 10 times 10. What does this census mean? Why these numbers? Why this hearing business? The 144,000 represents God's complete people called into holy war as God's warriors. Now, what does that mean? Well, this first scene, this opening part of chapter 7, is designed to give the people of God courage in this way. Always remember, when times are tough, when following Jesus begins to bring increased difficulty into your life, that you have been sealed by my Holy Spirit, God says. You have been called and chosen as my warriors, and I will never let you go. Do you need to hear that today? I mean, is there stuff going on in your life where you need to know that this is true for you? To know that God's got you? That if you've given your life to Jesus, if you've you've turned the leadership of your life over to Him that God has come to live inside of you, that He's got you, that you can look back to your ceiling and say, I've been sealed. I've been marked. I'm owned. God's got me. And what a difference that makes in the courage that we need to step up and follow Jesus, especially when times are tough. But that's not all, is it? The vision's not over. When times get tough, we also need to know that no matter what happens, God is going to bring us through. John not only recounts a vision of God sealing his people in the past when the Holy Spirit was given, but he also shows them a vision of their salvation in the future. You see, hearing, with your ears only, hearing about a messianic army would conjure up in hearts and minds images that could lead us down the wrong path. How easy it's been through the centuries for Christians to embrace an image of being God's holy warriors, but then pick up literal swords and begin to do violence and bring down their enemies through force of arms and violence. The exact opposite of the way of the Lamb. The exact opposite of Jesus' command to love our enemies. If you had only heard it. But that's only what John hears. (laughs) 
What John sees leads us in an entirely different direction. The way of the Lamb. And it reinterprets what it means to be the army of Jesus. What it means to be in a holy war. Now, do you remember another time when John heard one thing, but then saw something else? You remember that? Those of you who have been tracking with us so far. Back in the throne room, in chapter 5, John hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And we talked about the image that a lion gives us, the image of, of teeth bared and rippling muscles and the ability to really tear things apart. But when he turns to see this powerful lion, he sees a little lamb looking as if it had been slain. The lamb reinterprets the lion, showing us that true strength, ultimate victory, will not come through red tooth and claw, but through sacrifice and self-giving love. That's how that worked. Well, here in chapter 7, the same kind of contrast is happening. John hears the census of a complete and perfect messianic army, but when he turns to see it, he beholds something else entirely. I'll read it. After this, after hearing the census taken of the 144,000, I looked, and there before me was, or we pointed out in the past, I looked, and look! I looked, and behold! And looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. When John turns to see the army of 144,000, he sees instead a vast multitude of holy worshippers, already victorious, wearing white robes and waving palm branches to celebrate God's deliverance and salvation. And they're not made up of just 12 tribes of ethnic Israel, they're people from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. And what are they doing? They're standing. (laughs) This is the answer. Do you see the connection? Who can stand before the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb? That was the question that they asked at the end of seal 6. And here it is fully answered. Here's the people of God, the sealed servants of Jesus standing. Not before God's wrath, because he doesn't have any wrath for them, but standing before God as his own people who've been sealed, who are loved, who are saved from everywhere, every known people. In contrast to the limited number of 144,000, this is an uncountable crowd. In contrast to the limited ethnicity of national Israel, this is the multi-ethnic multitude of an expanded international Israel. In contrast to the image of readied warriors, this is a worshipping community of victorious priests and they're singing salvation. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then, I love this part, all the rest of the worshippers, the creatures, the elders, the angels, we've already, you know, we already introduced them back in chapter 4 and 5. They join in the worship chorus. They're actually, in this case, it's like they're following the leadership of God's sealed, redeemed people. And so they say, Amen! We agree. We agree with what they said. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then here's where the contrast gets really stark. How does this image of holy war get reinterpreted as the vision completes? We come to understand that God's people, God's army, are not victorious through use of military power or stark violence. They're victorious, listen to this, 
They're victorious in the same way that the Lamb was victorious. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, how was He victorious? He went to the cross. He suffered. He died. In in order to overcome evil and death, He didn't overcome evil and death by, by adding to it more violence. And His followers are victorious in the same way as the Lamb, by living a life of sacrificial witness, just like the Lamb as we're going to hear later in Revelation 12, the, the very central verse of Revelation, and Val's favorite verse, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and did not lie, love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. That's them. God's victorious people. Well, watch what happens next. One of the elders comes and says, Hey, John, who are these guys? Who, who are they? Where did they come from? These, these white-robed dudes. And he says exactly what all of us would have said, like, you're asking me? You know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are the people of God that God has brought through. Their victory is evident by their clothing, which has been washed white in blood. It's a stark image, because logically you can't wash cloth white in blood. What's this image saying? It's saying that their victory is rooted in the sacrificial death of Jesus and their willingness to follow Him in that sacrifice. An elder, the elder goes on to quote a whole uh, collage of, of Old Testament passages, mostly out of Isaiah, but images that are used again throughout Revelation. We saw that at the, at the end of Advent, depicting the future hope and future salvation. So we're going to see these again. This future vision that the elder paints gives incredible courage for our present witness. That God's got you and God's going to bring you through. Listen to these promises. Those who've come through victorious, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits in the throne will shelter them with His presence. What intimacy. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow. What a picture of hope. What a picture of salvation that God's people are sealed and are standing and are saved. That's where courage comes from. We can stand and look back to the fact that we've been sealed by God, that God has sent His Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us that no matter what we're facing, God's got us. And then we can stand and look forward to the promise that no matter what we have to go through to get there, no matter what difficulties we face, God has promised to bring us through and He will do just that. So let me ask you a question today. Where do you need to be courageous? Where do you feel the pressure mounting? Where have you felt like giving up? Where has Jesus been challenging you? provoking you, maybe just gently calling you to follow Him. Now, I don't know where it is exactly for you, but I can think of four areas where at least some of us could heed the call to step into courage, knowing that God's got you and God's going to bring you through. Four areas. The first one is in courageous holiness. It's about making things right. Being holy is not about being holier than thou. Or looking down at other people. Holy is just another word of saying set apart, but also saying getting things right. 
courageous holiness. And some of you are being called to that. That there's an area in your life where you know. No one needs to tell you. You know that you're compromised. That you decided to follow Jesus. That you received God's Holy Spirit as a seal, marking you out as God's own servant. And yet, there is a particular way in your life where you are, using the language of Paul, grieving the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe your ethics are out of order. Maybe you've been stealing or cutting corners, stealing off your boss. Maybe you've been letting anger destroy your life. Maybe you've been playing sexual power games in your marriage. Maybe you've been refusing to let Jesus lead in your finances. I don't know what it is, but it's time for you to be courageous. It's time for you to make things right, to actually repent as a Jesus follower. Repent of the ways you've been trying to be your own boss. You've been ignoring what Jesus is saying and saying, you know what, that's wrong. And I'm going to turn around and I'm going to say, Jesus, I want you to lead in my life. I want you to lead in this area. I want you to make things right. And we can do that. We can have that kind of courage when you know that God has got you and that God is going to bring you through. Because for some of us, to make that kind of step to courageous holiness is painful. And I know that some of you, just in the last few months, have made that kind of courageous decision to end a relationship, to change what you've been doing, to, to seek help with a habit. I know that some of you have been doing just that. And it's hard. It's tough. It can enter you into one of the most brutal, lonely, difficult times ever to step into this kind of courageous holiness. And that's why you have to know that God has got you. And that no matter how tough it gets, He's going to bring you through. You have to know that. For some of us, we need courageous love. That you have been faithful. But you're getting tired. You've been loving your spouse. You've been serving in the church. You've been reaching out to neighbors and friends. You've been giving and giving and giving some more. But you don't feel like you're getting any results. And let's be honest, you're just tired. But there's days when you just want to give up. I want you to know today that Jesus sees you in your situation. He knows exactly what you're going through. And he wants you to know today that he's got you. That you're his. That he's sealed you. That he's with you. And that he is going to bring you through. And he wants to keep pouring into your life the courage that you need. Keep pouring into your life the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Keep giving you all you need for the day ahead. So that you can keep in step with the Spirit. So you can take the courage to stay in when it can seem easier just to give up. Some of you are being called to courageous trust. There's some of you who need to take the first step. You know, you've been around for a while and you realize that you actually don't know that God's got you. I mean, you heard what was said this morning and you actually, if you were to be really honest, you don't have the confidence to know that God has got you and that God's going to bring you through because you've actually never turned your life over to Him. You've never asked Him to be first place in your life. You've never said, Jesus, I believe in you, I want to follow you. And today, courage for you is simply, but incredibly, this. You need to come to Jesus and say yes to his leadership. Say yes to his sacrifice on your behalf. To say yes to his gift of forgiveness and the gift of his Holy Spirit. To turn away from being your own boss and actually follow him. That's courageous trust. And if you're being called to that today, I want you to identify a Jesus follower who's in your life or around you today, and I want you to tell them that that's the decision you need to make today. Courageous trust. And then finally... I think there's many of us who need to become more courageous in our witness. We've been undercover Christians. We've been quiet. We've been mousy. We've been inoffensive. But we've also been ineffective. 
We've often done that because we're afraid. And I know what this is like because this is my challenge for me. We've been afraid, afraid of looking like idiots. Who wants to look like an idiot? I don't. I'm bad enough without trying. Right? Afraid of rejection. Afraid of offending. We're Canadian after all. Most of us are. Afraid of not knowing what to say. Afraid of the consequences, the effects of actually becoming courageous witness. And hear me right, I don't mean becoming a jackass and then making everybody around you, you know, feel really bad about Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about the courage to say, you know what, Jesus matters. That these people around me, it really matters that they find out about Jesus. And they begin to explore who he is. And if there's anything that this vision and revelation does for us, it should kick us into action to courageous witness. Knowing that Jesus has sealed us, marked us as his own, his servants, and calls us now to courageously follow him into the unknown, into the awkwardness, into the difficulty, into the chaos of this world and the the mess of people's lives. That's where Jesus is calling us so we can point this world and our friends and this valley, point them to Jesus, the only one who is going to make a difference in their life, the only one who's going to bring them through to life eternal. And I think for some of us today, we need to actually embrace this by admitting, first of all, that we've failed. <laughs> that we've, we've ignored this. We've hid out. It means we repent of our lack of love and our selfish concern with comfort or just with me and my life, my priorities. We need to follow Jesus as courageous witnesses. Those are the four areas. You can maybe add a few more areas. I don't want to limit how the Holy Spirit might be challenging you today. But friends, church, servants of God who've been sealed, now is not the time for us to shrink back. It matters too much. People matter too much. What God is doing in this world matters too much. What God is doing here in this church matters too much. We're not going to shrink back. Instead, we're going to embrace the fact that God's got us and God is going to bring us through and have the courage from Him to do whatever He's calling us to do. Amen? Amen. Let me pray, and then Amanda and her team is going to come and lead us in one final song. Jesus, we are thankful that you've got us and that you're going to bring us through. What a challenge. And I pray today for each one who is facing a decision of courage. Courage to make a holy decision. Courage to love. Courage to trust. Courage to witness. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would invigorate us with the truth that you've got us and you're going to bring us through. I pray that vision would just meld into our hearts and minds and change the way we think and pray and live. Your mission matters, Jesus. People matter. And I pray today that we would walk away knowing your love and your power in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.